Hey everyone, this is Chad Harms, pastor of Creekside Bible Church, and I want to start by saying Happy New Year. I really do hope that 2018 is a year where you see God working in your life in incredible and profound ways. I also want to say thank you for taking time to listen to our latest sermon. It's not a sermon that I preached, but it is one that I think you will find really helpful as Matt teaches about Jesus as the greatest storyteller. On top of that, I want to invite you to come to one of our services. As 2018 begins, you might be thinking about things that you want to do differently next year. And at Creekside, we believe that you have a unique purpose. And it's our goal, our aim, our hope, our mission to help you live out that purpose. A great first step in allowing us to help you do and be all that God has called you to do and be is by coming to one of our services. If you want any information about that, you can just click on Sundays in the menu of this website and you'll be able to figure out everything you need in order to make visiting as comfortable as possible. I really would love to see you at church one of these weeks and so I'm inviting you now to be there. Again, thanks for listening to the sermon. I really hope that it will help you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. I was... um. Just telling my brother-in-laws uh, back there before church started um, about one of the worst ways to start off a party. <clears throat> I um, was going with my wife to a costume party for Halloween. And right when we arrived, um, one of her friends from school came out and she was wearing um, this full black uh, dress, and her whole face was green, and I looked at her and I said, ah, yes, of course, from, from Shrek. I thought sh- she looked like Fiona from Shrek, and she looked at me and she said, no, I'm the Wicked Witch. And immediately my foot was in my mouth, and I thought, well, that's one of the worst ways to start out a party, because now she thinks I'm just looking at her and be like, hey, you look a little big. You look a little big. How are you doing today? That's pretty much how she took it. It's a horrible, the truth was, that's what I thought. That's what I thought. But she was immediately turned off by the truth, and of course, I just wanted to go into the bathroom and be like, okay, when's this over? It's one of the worst ways. But in many ways, when Jesus, what we saw last week, when he just told people the truth, they immediately shut down from it. They immediately shut down, so he used story as a way of sort of subverting those defenses. We, of course, looked at Matthew chapter 13, verses 10 through 17, where Jesus answers the disciples' question of, hey, why are you speaking in stories? Why are you speaking in parables? And we looked at that idea of how he, in many ways, uses it because the truth offends them or the truth turns them off. And stories are, in many ways, the the Trojan horse. They get in there because you don't get to really know the meaning. You don't get to really know the truth of it until after the end, after you've sort of reflected on it. And by that time, it's already past your defenses. You couldn't have just sort of fought it off at the border. Now it's, it's there with you, face to face. So you have to confront the truth and decide then and there whether or not you're going to accept it or reject it. Face to face. 
And nowadays, when uh, kids get into relationships and things might get tough and they realize, you know, I don't want this anymore, I'm going to do the really hard thing. I'm going to text them and let them know it's over. <laughs> right? They text it. They send out this small little blurb that says, hey, uh, you and I, we're not working out. I'm sorry. See, that difficult thing is a lot easier when you don't have to confront it face to face. So in many ways, story is sort of that, that surprise visit from somebody who comes with that conversation that you really don't want to have, especially face to face. Story makes you confront the truth because it gets to you. So that's what we talked about. Um, and, and there's this corollary relationship between why Jesus spoke in stories and how he did it. And, and the first point I want to address is there wouldn't be much need for story if the truth was easy. First point is if the truth was easy, there would be no need for story. And I'll give you an example. I'm going to read to you the dictionary definition of a computer firewall. Many of you don't know what that is anyways, so I'll define it for you. In computing, a firewall is a network security system that monitors and controls incoming and outgoing network traffic based on predetermined security rules. A firewall typically establishes a barrier between a trusted internal network and untrusted external networks such as the internet. There you go. You got it now. Right? You all understand. Probably not. Probably not, because the reality is, is that unless you have some understanding already of what computer networking is, what a firewall is, then the definition was just defining the unfamiliar with more unfamiliar. It didn't make any sense to you. So instead of telling you what a firewall is, let me tell you what a firewall is like. And you see the difference. It's like a bank. See, when you go into a bank, though I wish it were like this, if you, you don't just go into a bank, open the door and open up a locker and be like, yep, I need this much money, okay? And then you leave, right? You don't just go in and take money. You go and you go to a teller and they establish your identity. You give them certain identi identification so they know that you're trusted, they know that you have an account, and they check your balance if you want to make a withdrawal. All of this is verifying your identity to make sure that you are a trusted person. A firewall is this. It's a protocol that identifies that you are someone who can be trusted and who can access the information that you want to access. And vice versa, if someone wants to access the information on your computer, that it verifies that they are trusted. Is that better? I didn't tell you what a firewall is, I told you what it's like and it's easier to understand. And I did <clears throat> this lesson with my, um, with my students because the reality is that Jesus isn't explaining something that's easy. If he were like, man, I'm just trying to tell these people what an olive is. I've been explaining over and over and over what an olive is. And you'd be like, what do you mean? Just show them. Go grab an olive and show them. It's easy. 
He's not explaining this, this physical thing or this physical aspect of reality. He's explaining a heavenly truth. He's explaining what the kingdom of God is. And so I did this lesson uh, with my students where I, I wanted them to understand how hard it actually is to describe more abstract ideas, those difficult ideas. If I asked you, hey, what is love? What is compassion? What is the number seven? I think all of you know what those are, but I think all of you would struggle, at least at first, to define what they are. Because understanding um, is a different language. You don't store understanding in your brain in complete English sentences so that you can just sort of pull it out when someone asks you what it is. You have to actually translate your understanding into English, and it isn't always easy. And um, so this is, I mean, I get, think of the number seven. If someone doesn't know what the number, what numbers are, the number seven isn't something physical, and you can't just be like, well, this is the number seven, and point to the number seven. It would be like pointing to the word love and thinking that you've helped define it. It doesn't work. So Jesus is, is trying to explain this heavenly truth to people who don't understand it. And so this is the lesson I did with my students. They're all sitting in a circle. I have them all sit in a circle. And I tell them to close their eyes. <clears throat> and I said, imagine that you're sitting out on a porch. And you're right with your best friend. And all of a sudden, over this mountainscape, you see this incredibly beautiful sunset. This reddish-orange hue lights up the sky the, the, the colors are distinct, yet they seem to coalesce into this unity. It's just, you're awestruck by it. It's almost as if you could feel the warmth of it. And it takes over the entire sky over this, over this mountainscape. And you, you physically say, wow. And your friend right by you, well, your friend is blind, been blind since birth. And they hear you say, wow. And they go, What? What happened? And you say, I just saw the most beautiful sunset. And see, they know, they know what the sun is. They know what a sunset is. They know what a mountainscape is. They know what this is, but they don't know what it's like. And they ask you, oh, wow, what was that like? What was that like? And then I ask my students, what would you say. How do you tell them what it's like? And they were, of course, well, that's hard. Well, they don't understand anything visual. They're blind. They're blind since birth. So some of them are like, well, I would say I saw red and orange together. I was like, how is that helpful? How does that help? Uh, this is some of their answers, okay? These are real. I assure you, they're real. One of them was like, okay, I, are you being serious? Where he said it's like dipping your knees into two bowls of cold spaghetti. So we'll, we'll say that that had to have not been serious. Yet here, here was someone who said, I would give them a cotton ball. I would put it in their hand. I would let them feel it. And it's like that sort of fluffy feeling. And then, this is beautiful, I would take Tabasco 
and I would pour it on the cotton ball, and that would somehow simulate the warmth of it. <laughs> and it's like that. That's what it's like. I feel like it's like this squishy thing that smells really potent, <laughs> right? Mm, it's vinegary. Another person said it's like sitting down at your favorite restaurant and enjoying the best beef stroganoff you've ever had. There was another person who's, who said that they would microwave an egg. Then they would put that egg in the person's hand and say, you feel that? The shape of it? The warmth of it? It's like that, but in the sky. <laughs> okay, all right. And another person said, well, wait a minute. Wait a minute, colors are physical. They're just wavelengths. And I said, wait, you're just going to tell them the wavelengths of red and orange? And they're going to be like, oh, yeah, that's great. Tell me another wavelength, will you? And then you had some people, you know, it was like, it's like this cuddly stuffed animal kind of thing. Um, one of them was really beautiful. They said, it's like sitting in front of a fire with a warm blanket as you listen to the most beautiful symphony you've ever heard, where you know that all the notes are distinct, yet still they seem to make just one beautiful sound. I said, dang, you got, that was good. That was good, because you're appealing then to the senses that they do have, the feel of it, the sound of it, right? You can't tell them visually because they don't have that sense, so you use the familiar to them. See, and this is what Jesus had to do. We're the blind ones. We are the blind ones. And he says, how in the world do I explain these heavenly truths to people who don't have even that heavenly sense? He uses then the familiar to explain the unfamiliar. That's that second point. The first being, of course, that if the truth was easy, you wouldn't need stories. The second being that he explains the familiar or the unfamiliar using the familiar. And the example I want to look at, if you put it up here, Brian, is um, the parable of the mustard seed, Bryn. Brian, I call her Brian. Um, it's the parable of the mustard seed, and it comes from the same uh, area of Scripture, chapter 13 of Matthew, uh, that we went over last week. Um, and this is an example of Jesus really using the unfamiliar, or sorry, using the familiar to explain the unfamiliar. And this is what it says. He presented another parable to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all other seeds. But when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. And so, after kind of explaining how difficult it is really to explain the unfamiliar um, with my students, 
Um, I had him look at this verse. This is um, what we would call a pericope. It's just taking a section of Scripture and, and looking at it in isolation. And I said, you know, the first thing that you want to do is you want to place this contextually in the book that you're taking it from. All right, so we know that this is, for instance, after um, Jesus' baptism, it's after the temptation, it's after he had already chosen his disciples, and it was during his ministry. In fact, he is um, outside of a house, he's sitting on this shoreline, when all of a sudden this huge crowd of people come to him. And the crowd was so big that he had to take this fishing boat out into the sea so that he can be in front of them. So he's in this boat as they're all on the shoreline, and he's delivering these parables to the people on the shore. And the first parable is the parable of the sower. And right after that parable, he's, the disciples go to him and ask, hey, why are you speaking in parables? This is what we talked about last week. He tells them why, and then he explains the parable of the sower, and then he, Jesus, appears to go and talk to the whole crowd again, speaking a few more parables. And after that, the disciples, um, Jesus leaves the crowd, and the disciples follow him into a house, and they ask again, hey, what did these parables mean? And it's kind of clunky and kind of awkward in that, in fact, many scholars don't believe that Matthew is presenting this chronologically, that is in historical order. And that's because it would look something like this. Jesus goes out into a boat, says one parable to the crowd, and then the disciples are like, wait a minute, and then they wait out in in another boat maybe and say, hey, hold on, before you start talking to him again, can you explain some things to us? And so Jesus spends some time just talking to the disciples, and then they go, okay, that's good. And then they go back, and then Jesus talks to the crowd again. And then after that, the disciples go to him again and say, okay, now that they're gone, can you explain to us some more stuff? The reality is that the author most likely wants you to know the explanation of why Jesus is using the parables and the explanation of that first parable prior to going into the rest of the parables, even though that conversation likely happened afterwards. And we're going to see more of that here in a second. So when we, when we looked at this section of Scripture in the class, I asked them then, so what do you think that this means? What do you think that it means? And uh, this is a very popular parable. Many have heard it before, and so they said, well, here's what I think. They're always afraid to tell me what they think, and that might be a bad thing because I'm going to be like, that's great, but you're wrong. Um, so I've got, I'm, I'm working on that. Like, that's great perspective while I'm not. Um, but they would say, <clears throat> you know, it's like faith. It's like our faith where it can start out really small. You know, when we first become a Christian, it starts out really small. But if, if we are passionate about it and if we work on it, it can grow into something really big in our life. So, yeah, that's true. That's great. Some said, well, it's like Christianity, where Christianity really started out really small in this localized area, uh, but then it spread all throughout the world and, and impacted the entire world. I said, that, yeah, that's true. That's great. And then I asked, well, in this parable, what do you think are some of the words that would really help us understand it better? Do you know what everything in here means? 
They said, well, the kingdom of God would be a good one. I said, well, well, what does it say? It says the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. So he's explaining the kingdom of God. He's telling you what it's like, and it's like a mustard seed. Do you know what a mustard seed is? And, of course, they said, well, it's the smallest seed. That's what it says. He said, well, yeah, it was the smallest seed to them, to, to Jesus' audience. I mean, many of whom were these first century sort of Palestinian farmers. They were poor people. They knew that it was the smallest seed to them. Um, if Jesus said, hey, the kingdom of God is like an orchid seed, which is technically the smallest. It's like a speck of dust. They'd be like, this means nothing to me. I don't even know what an orchid is, right? What are you saying, <laughs> Jesus? So he's using the familiar to them. In their culture, in their time, the smallest seed was the mustard seed. And then I had this girl uh, in the circle. She was a farmer. And she said, you know, I have to go outside all the time. My mom, my mom makes me go outside all the time, and I have to knock down all these mustard plants because they're a weed and they get everywhere. And I said, yes, yes. 2,000 years ago, Pliny, the elder, wrote when he was talking about plants, he also talked a lot about beer, but he was talking about uh, the mustard seed in one area, and he says, it germinates so quickly, it's almost impossible to cultivate. It's a weed. The mustard seed was a weed. And then the kid said, well, what's interesting, what's interesting here is it says his field. It doesn't say a field. You don't just go and throw this mustard seed in a field. You throw it in your own field. Luke calls it a garden. You throw it in your own garden. So you're taking this mustard seed that people knew was a weed, and you're throwing it into your own garden. That's kind of crazy. And then what's interesting, they say, oh, and it, and it grows into a tree, a tree that overshadows all your other plants. And I asked the same girl who talked about it being a weed, I said, how many, of, how many times have you seen a mustard seed become a tree? And she said, well, I've never seen a mustard tree. Mustard seeds grow to be at most a nine-foot shrub, never a tree. See, Jesus, the point Jesus was making was he wasn't saying, hey, I'm being botanically correct here. He's just saying, the small, think of the smallest thing growing into the biggest thing. Imagine if a mustard seed grew into a tree. Imagine that. You have this weed that you plant into your own life, into your own field. It'll germinate quickly, threaten to take everything else over, and it will grow into a tree. And they think, well, and it's beautiful, though, because then it invites the, tree, the, the birds into the branches, and this is very beautiful. I said, wait a minute, do you want a tree in your garden? What are you going to, tree, a tree creates shadows and shade and, and you won't get sun for your other plants. That's why I said it grows taller than all your other plants. Bigger. It overshadows everything else. And then the birds come and rest in its branches. And see, remember that that Matthew went out of his way to make sure that he explained the parable of the sower just before this parable. 
In the parable of the sower, it says the kingdom of God is like a man who sows some seeds. Some of them fall on the roadside. There's more to it, but this is what's important. Some of them fall on the roadside, and the birds come and eat them up. And then when Jesus explains this parable in verse 18, he said the birds are like the enemy that come and eat the truth. They eat it before it can take root in your life. So the people hearing this are saying, the mustard seed? You want, the kingdom of God is like a weed that you plant into your own life so it germinates quickly, can take over the whole thing? It's like me going in my backyard and I'm saying, honey, this needs a little something. I'm thinking blackberry bushes. (laughs) Right? I'll toss a few blackberry seeds. We come back two days later and it's just the jungle, right? It takes over everything. So you want me to put this thing into my life that takes over everything, that will grow into something huge, take over my whole garden, overshadow everything else, all of my other ventures. It'll become the most important, the biggest thing in my life, and with it will come Birds, the thing that farmers have literally for centuries on centuries been trying to keep out of our gardens. They have created things to keep birds away from their fields, away from their gardens, and now they're doing something that invites them in. And we have a tendency within Christianity to say that when we accept Christ, it is this sort of panacea, the, the cure to everything, and we will always just be happy and joyful and perfect. And Jesus right here is saying that Christianity, if you accept it, will take over your life. If you let it take root in your life, it will rule it. And with it, will come things that are really hard. Imagine the the people listening there, the truth, the truth of this, if they accepted it, if the wrong people found out that they were believing this kingdom truth, they could be taken, they could be sawed in half, they could be crucified along the roadside, they could be taken by governors and thrown into a coliseum where they would be devoured by wild animals. This is what happened. Christianity is dangerous. That's the reality. See, this was familiar to them. All of this was familiar to them. So he used the familiar, the mustard seed, the farming, the tree, the shadows, the birds. He used the familiar to explain the unfamiliar reality of what the kingdom of God is like. And he said that it is difficult. And I'll give you an example. The example of this idea of of really how the enemy works. Because the enemy will, will perch in the branches of the truth that we've built in our life and will seek to rob us at every opportunity of the truth because he does not want it to take root in our lives. When I 
uh, first uh, started teaching last year. See, of course, I was working full-time at Costco, and um, Chad came to me, the pastor here at Creekside, Chad. He came to me, and he said, hey, I, I applied for this teaching job, but I can't really do it. <clears throat> I said, okay. He's like, I could only really commit half-time. He said, I think that you should go and put in an application and say you could work the other half. I said, I don't know how that would work out. Um, I working full-time at Costco. Um, I'll try. And so I, I put in an application. I had an interview. We killed it. I'm pretty sure I did better than him. <laughs> the reason being that he told me all the questions that they would ask. <laughs> so, man, was I ready. Um, but they really liked us. They really liked us. And it was a toss-up who would end up being the chaplain. So we were going to be their Bible teachers, but with that came uh, a chaplaincy. And it could have been either one of us, but because with my Costco schedule, I, I could only work the mornings and, ch- and the chapels are in the mornings, I ended up becoming the chaplain. And man, I, I fell in love with it. I did it just so that Chad could do it. And then I, I fell absolutely in love with the experience, with the school, and certainly with the kids, to just see the impact of the truth on kids' lives and to be able to participate in that um, and be uh, really a part of something that was just much larger than me. And it was an incredible, incredible experience. And then Chad came to me near, nearing the end of the school year and said that he couldn't feasibly do it um, next year. I mean, he has such a big commitment here at this church. Uh, he said that he didn't want to in any way shirk his responsibilities here since his passion and his love is here first, which is great. But I was kind of sad, right? Because I couldn't possibly do it full time. It paid pennies, pennies, really, compared to Costco, what I was doing there. So I thought, man, this thing that I, I've, I've fallen in love with, I won't be able to do. And consistently and persistently, I was, I was having this nagging calling, like, Matt, you're supposed to be here. Matt, this is what you're supposed to be doing. Matt, you've got to do this. And I'm thinking, why are you saying this to me? I can't. I can't. I have a family. I have to actually pay for things, right? I need to make this work. And I'm telling my wife about this. I, I, can't, I can't shake it. I can't shake it. I have this calling in my life. And she says, Matt, you need to just do it. And I said, are you crazy? Are you crazy? We can't afford it. And so she goes, she puts her glasses on, right? And she does her wifely thing of calculating. She's better at math than I am. And she comes to me and she says, Matt, if I work this much, if I can bring in this much more, and if I have this strict of a budget, we can do it. We can do it, barely. It'd take a lot of sacrifice, but we could do it. And I said, okay. More than anything else, I was scared. I was scared, and I remember sitting down with the principal, and I said, I, you know, I need to talk with you. And she looked at me, and she said, you're going to give me bad news, aren't you? And I said, no, I don't think so. I'm going to do it. I don't know exactly how it's going to work, but I have a calling, and I would be a hypocrite 
if I'm telling these kids that God can call you in things in your life, and when I'm getting the calling that I'm like, oh, no, probably not, right? So I did it. I did it. And then as I got sort of farther away from that moment of calling, I know for a fact that the enemy was seeking to rob me of that assurance. Because the farther away I got, I was thinking, have I made a terrible mistake? Wait a minute, what, was that, the, I, I've, where I once felt so certain, the farther I got from it, I was like, well, wait a minute, was that real? Was I just having indigestion or something? What was it? Wait a minute, I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't know, I don't know. Was this real? Was this a real calling? God, was this actually something that you wanted me to do? I wasn't sure anymore. The, the, the worst thing about it, and I'm telling you, the worst thing about it was that it was working. Is that it was working, and I was thinking, God, I know, I know, right? I know that you called me to this because I felt it, but, but what am I feeling now? I'm scared, and I don't think that this is going to work. And then it sort of culminates in Ashley coming to me during the holidays. And she says, um, Christmas. I said, oh, gosh, I don't want to talk about Christmas. She says, how are we going to make it work? Can we even do it? Can we do Christmas? Um, because we, we were accustomed over the years of being able to uh, participate in, in Christmas, of you know, giving gifts to loved ones, and we were thinking, I don't know that it would be responsible I don't know if we can. How are, we, how are we going to get by this season if we did that? And, and so we were going to sit down, pull up our bank account and figure it out. See what we could do, if we could do anything. And as she's pulling it up, she's pulling it up on her phone. Her face goes white. And I'm, no, 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 no. But then she looks at me and she says, Matt, Matt, I, did something go wrong with your school? I'm like, what do you mean, what? She says, did you get double paid? Did you get more than triple paid? What's going on here? I said, what do you mean? And she shows me. I said, well, that's not right. That's not right. I immediately, I call up the principal and I say, hey, I, there, there must have been some mistake because I, I got way more than I should have. And she said, Matt, that's not your paycheck. There's a parent that knows what you did and wanted to bless your life. And I thought, what? I didn't have words. My wife was already crying on the floor because she's like, we're terrible with finances. We don't deserve this. And I'm just like, accept it, accept it, right? Someone blessed our lives, and what an incredible confirmation of ministry. It came at the perfect moment. It came at the perfect moment where it's like, God, I am sorry for doubting. I am sorry for not having the, the assurance that I should have had. See, but this isn't just, I didn't bring this story up just to say, 
Um, this is an example of that parable where the enemy comes and he tries to rob you of your assurance. He tries to rob you of truth because when you are a Christian firmly planted and you let Christianity take control of your life, there is going to be an enemy that wants to rob you of that. That's true. But I also brought this story up to show you the power of our own stories. There is a power to our own stories. And that is the third point I want to make about Jesus. And that is that his life was his most powerful story. Jesus' life was his most powerful story. See, as, as Christians, we do tell about the things that Jesus said. We tell about the stories that he said. We tell about all the truths that he uttered. But more, more than anything else, we tell the story of what he did. And I'll, uh, I'm okay on time. I'll give you an example of the time where somebody's story changed my mind. Somebody's story changed my heart on something. Um, I don't like the idea, even now, frankly, of the idea of being an organ donor. The idea that after I die, somebody could just sort of harvest my organs and take things out of my body. Like, that's just unseemly. And it's, it's just bizarre and weird to me. And I, don't wa- I, I just don't want that. Right? Your eyes are an organ. I know for a fact they won't take my wife's eyes, though. They'd be like, this was a significant downgrade. I'd rather be blind. So she'll have those intact. But then one day I was sitting in a class. It was on Wesleyan studies. And for whatever reason, my professor, his name was Larry Shelton, began to tell the story of his heart transplant. Because he was um, driving frantically to a hospital in Seattle where a new heart was waiting for him. But... Three years before that, he was giving two years to live. So he was literally living on borrowed time. After many uh, heart attacks and bypass surgery, he was going to die. He was going to die if he didn't get a new heart. And of course, that trip to Seattle, he finally did get a new heart. But it wasn't until three weeks after the heart transplant that he realized to whom he owed the gratitude. And he found out that a 14-year-old boy playing football sustained a brain injury and died. And the boy's parents, in that moment of absolute grief, in that moment where they, they lost their son, they decided. They decided that their son's death would serve a purpose to love others. And so they allowed their son's organs to be donated. That's got to be hard. That's got to be really hard for a parent. So your son 
someone whom you would die for, speaking of my own son. I would give my life for this son, right, to make that decision. Five lives were saved that day through that. Five lives, including my professor. The reality is is that 19 people die every single day, waiting but never receiving an organ transplant. And I never had that D on my license, but I came home and I told my wife, I need to become an organ donor. His story changed my mind. It changed my life. And so we saw that Jesus uses parables because the truth is not easy. We saw that he uses the familiar to explain the unfamiliar, but most importantly, we saw that Jesus' life is his most powerful story. And that's really, I, I, I didn't say much on that point because it's going to be the majority of the focus of the next sermon about Jesus' life being the most powerful story. But what's instructive here is that while you can tell great stories, that you could explain things that are hard using story, you can explain the unfamiliar using the familiar. What will be most effective is if people don't just say, ah, he told a good story. But they look at your life and they say, ah, now that's a good story. It's not just about what you say. It is about what you do and how you live. Because that's what people will remember. See, Jesus died so that we could live. And that is the most powerful story. And it's the one in Christianity that we are tasked with telling people everywhere. But I also pray that in your own lives that you would realize the story that you have to tell. Not just in the things that you say, but in the things that you do. Will you play with me? God, I just... I thank you for the opportunity to to be able to get up here and share my own experiences, God, to get up here and share um, stories, God, and share your truth and your wisdom and share how you have changed and impacted my life, God. I just pray that we would be faithful to you, God, that we would not just be people who hear your stories and listen to your stories, God, but we would be people who try to become your stories with our lives. That we would try to emulate in the things that we do the truth that you have taught us. God, and I just thank you so much for what you did. That you lived out the greatest story ever told, God. And we love you so much, and I pray that you would be with us be with us today and forever. In your precious name, amen.